Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast full of the stories you need to hear and some that might just take you by surprise. I'm Anne McElvoy and on your menu this week, the psychologist Steven Pinker launches our open future season and he thinks we should all learn to look on the bright side. The cities where license plates are more expensive than the cars and why the last thing you should worry about is death. But let's start at the very beginning with our cover story. It's natural for presidents to shape their parties around them, but Donald Trump has done this more successfully than most. Big league, in fact. Our cover leader asked, what's become of the Republican Party? It is an extraordinary achievement from a man who had never lived in Washington, D.C., never held public office, who boasted of groping women and who as recently as 2014 was a donor to the hated Democrats. So how did he do it? The organising principle of Mr Trump's Republican Party is loyalty. Not, as with the best presidents, loyalty to an ideal, a vision or a legislative programme, but to just one man, Donald J. Trump, and to the prejudice and rage which consume the voter base that on occasion even he struggles to control. It's not a question of his policies or the substance of his presidency, but of his style. At the heart of his system of power is his contempt for the truth. In a memoir published this week, James Comey, who Mr Trump fired as director of the FBI, laments the lying about all things, large and small, in service to some code of loyalty that put the organisation above morality and above the truth. And we argued this culture might make the Donald feel safe, but it is endangering his country. When power dominates truth... Criticism becomes betrayal. Policymaking suffers, as instead of a coherent programme, America undergoes government by impulse. Anger, nativism, mercantilism, beyond the reach of empirical argument. He was against the Trans-Pacific Trade Deal, then for it, then against it again. For gun control, then for arming teachers instead. Ordinary Americans will have their say in November's midterm elections. But responsibility also falls to Republicans who know that Mr Trump is bad for America and the world. They feel pinned down because they cannot win elections without Mr Trump's base, but equally they cannot begin to attempt to prize Mr Trump and his base apart without being branded traitors. Such Republicans need to reflect on how speaking up will bear on their legacy. To find out how Republicans can move beyond the shadow of their president, go to the briefing in this week's issue of The Economist. Or if you prefer your news to come to you, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 of your British pounds. 
The Economist has been championing free trade and individual freedoms for 175 years this year. To celebrate our grand old age, we've launched Open Future, remaking the case for liberal ideas and exploring some of the challenges. In the first podcast of this new special season, psychologist Stephen Pinker joined me on our chat show to make the case for radical optimism. We should celebrate the uh, increases in the fortunes of the worst off in the world, the fact that global poverty is being decimated, that uh, children are going to school, uh, girls included, that uh, laws against homosexuality are being stricken down in country after country, does not make the news even if the setbacks do, the uh, disease is being conquered. Uh, We should acknowledge that the world has been getting safer, that when technologies are introduced, they tend to start off dangerous, but but, uh, we figure out how to tame them over time. The world has come together to solve challenges such as the ozone hole such as atmospheric nuclear testing, such as piracy, whaling, slavery. What we have to do is identify what has made things better in the past and push for more of it. Make make the case that Enlightenment ideals have succeeded. And we're very keen that you should join the debate whichever side you're on. Do go to www.economist.com slash openfuture. You can hear the rest of that interview on your podcast app. Another reason to be cheerful. And here's proof that some things do indeed get better. AI experts have managed to get a robot to do the most maddening task known to mankind, assembling a piece of flat-pack furniture. But should we be worried? Have humans finally been made redundant? Tim Cross came on to Babbage, our science and technology podcast, to reassure us. What's striking about this is it's so different from a lot of the other sort of robotics and AI papers we've seen. So you mentioned things like Go, and it seems to us really impressive that a machine can beat a human at something as as complicated as that. And for all the joking, you know, putting together an IKEA chair, especially this one, is not actually that difficult. And most sort of semi-competent adults could probably do it fairly easily. It took the robots more than 20 minutes to do this. Nine minutes of that was them sitting there trying to work out how to translate the commands the humans had given them into kind of commands they could understand. What that kind of shows is one of the limits of AI. So you might still be quicker putting up that wardrobe on your own. Babbage is assembled with loving care every Wednesday. Now, the universal service obligation is a bit of a mouthful, but basically it's the idea that anyone can send a letter anywhere in a country for the same affordable price. Easier said than done. Last week, the US Postal Service came under fire from the president for hiring Amazon to deliver its parcels. On Money Talks, our business and finance podcast, Helen Joyce asked Henry Kerr, our US economics editor, whether we might be nearing the last post for the USPS. The whole reason the universal service obligation was dreamt up was to keep all people involved in the economy. You know, the arteries of the information economy were in the in the postal system. Nowadays, that's not the case. Certainly, in, in America, of all letters delivered, sixty percent are actually direct mail advertising and only 3% of people writing to each other. Clearly, what people need to participate in the modern economy is more an internet connection than access to post boxes and so on. If you were the boss of USBS, what would you do? First thing you'd do? Well, there's certainly a lot of problems at the at the company and a lot to think about. But the first thing I'd do, of course, is make sure that everyone gets their copy of The Economist on time. And if you enjoy your regular delivery of Economist podcasts, do give us a rating on your podcast app. We'll keep them coming and it sometimes makes our day. Back to this week's paper now and a piece in our China section ventured through the looking glass to the cities where a license plate costs more than the actual car. Liu Lei has been waiting to buy a car for more than seven years. 
Sadly, Mr Liu, an engineer from Beijing, has had no luck in the capital's licence plate lottery. Introduced in 2011, this system for allocating number plates aims to tackle the city's problems of rage-inducing congestion and asphyxiating pollution. Mr Liu is not alone in his sad lack of good fortune. The odds of winning fell from 6% in February 2011 to an all-time low of 0.2% this February. In the latest one, 2.8 million people contended for 6,460 plates. In Shanghai, the financial capital, there are also strict quotas. City officials put the plates up for auction online. The average winning bid was 88,176 yuan, that's $14,022, more than it costs to buy many domestically made cars. Unsurprisingly, there's a flourishing black market. Song Jiangguo, then head of Beijing's Traffic Management Bureau, was jailed for life in 2015 for demanding backhanders in exchange for rigging the lottery. A bribe of at least 200,000 yuan was reportedly needed to guarantee victory. But the current is changing. After all, the future is electric. To fight pollution, officials in nearly all big cities are allocating separate quotas of licence plates for buyers of electric or hybrid cars. Such vehicles are also heavily subsidised. In fact, Mr Liu's wife has just applied for an electric vehicle plate. These are offered on a first-come, first-served basis. The odds are much better. Only four people are vying for each one. We flip over to the Asia section now, where our Banyan columnist investigated the trade in goods even rarer than a Shanghai license plate. Even the Minahasan people, who pride themselves on eating bushmeat, call the collection of stalls at Tomohon in the highlands of North Sulawesi the extreme market. The sheer range of species on the slabs is also astonishing. Reticulated pythons, warty pigs, flying foxes, that's a type of fruit bat, and the Sulawesi giant rat. No, it doesn't taste like chicken. Though these sad specimens are destined for the table, there's also a livelier market in pets. Trade in wild birds is supposedly circumscribed, yet the ferries are crammed with them. Indonesian soldiers returning from a tour in Papua typically pack a few wild cockatoos or lorries to sell. One in five urban households in Indonesia keeps birds. But the biggest racket of all is for traditional medicine. Many believe ground rhino horn to be effective against fever as well as to make you, well, horny. Owing to Asian demand for horns, the number of rhinos poached in South Africa leapt from 13 in 2007 to 1,028 last year. The new front line is South America. A jaguar's four fangs, ten claws, pelt and genitalia sell for $20,000 in Asia. The continent's appetite for rare wildlife is forcing conservationists to get a bit more creative. Wildlife NGOs are hiring ex-cops as sleuths and working with governments to provide intelligence on trafficking networks. Back in Sulawesi, some conservationists want Minahasan pastors to thunder from the pulpit against bushmeat, even though their bellies might argue otherwise. And finally, if, as you get older, you find yourself increasingly fretting about your own personal extinction, a review in our Books and Arts section had a simple remedy for you. A few years ago, Barbara Ehrenreich stopped going for checkups. The decision to forego cancer screenings and physical exams has set her apart from her friends, 
whose calendars are full of doctor's appointments and whose cupboards are crammed with supplements and medicines. But as the American writer, who is 76, explains in Natural Causes, her remaining time is too precious to spend in windowless waiting rooms. The book isn't just a rant about quacks and snake oil salesmen. It is an eclectic, if scattershot, musing on attitudes to life and death. Life expectancy in rich countries is now more than 80. Death is generally less capricious and sudden. Comitantly, humans are far less likely to see themselves as helpless against the grim reaper. Doctors have ousted priests as the anointed experts in mortality. Spin classes have replaced the sacraments. So that would be baptism, first communion, soul cycle, hot yoga, last rites, right? She does go too far. For most of the world, including America, a lack of health care is a bigger problem than a surplus of it. Nevertheless, there is a profound message buried in this survey. It is that real choice in healthcare must involve the freedom to refuse it. Let us know what you think. Should people resist the medicalization of old age? Can you think of a better way for China to dole out those license plates? And would you happily lose the post if it meant universal broadband access? Hmm. Write to us at radio at economist.com or tweet us. We're at Economist Radio. And remember, you can go deeper into all of our stories at economist.com. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you have no idea where it's going? Well, I know it's all of those subscriptions. I used Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash pod24. That's rocketmoney.com slash pod24. rocketmoney.com slash pod24.